here. I'm Ashley Reed. Um, I am Senior Managing Editor at YGS. And uh, if we could just go around and introduce our, all of you and talk about your title and your role, that would be fantastic. I will start with you, Jane. Hi, good morning. I'm Jane Elsperman, and I am currently the founder and CEO of Jane Elsperman LLC, and it's a school leadership development company, which I started after 40 years in education, 25 of those years as a school principal. Excellent. Good morning. My name is Scott Borba. I am the superintendent principal of the Grand Union Elementary School District in California. Also sit on the board of directors for NASP as the representative from Zone 9, and I am an adjunct professor at CSU Stanislaus for school law. Excellent. Good morning. My name is Diane Edwards. I'm the chief academic officer for Chesapeake Public Schools, and I also support NASP in coaching mentors. Thank you so much. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. All right. Let's go ahead and dive in. Uh, so this first one is for everyone. Ethical principal leadership is a broad topic. How does it come up in the work that you do as a school leader or in working in leadership development? Go ahead and start. I think that one of the most important things that we have to remember as school leaders, we operate in the realm of public trust because everyone trusts us with their most precious, precious possession, their children. And everything that we do has to be of the highest ethical standard because people are counting on us to make good decisions, to, especially in a leadership position, to lead those who are directly impacting those precious children. Absolutely. I think the, uh, the principalship and school leadership um, is all about servant leadership. It's about leading from behind. And, and, and in order to do that effectively, you have to have a really strong moral compass. You have to know who you are as a leader. You have to know what lines you won't cross as a leader, um, just as a, as a person. Um, and you have to make sure that you, you have the integrity to stick um, to those lines. And uh, you make that very clear upon being hired, that these are my lines, these are my boundaries that I won't cross, so that the community, the board, and your school, your school knows exactly how far you'll go. Scott, can you tell me a little bit more about how you define servant leadership and leading from behind? Right. So um, I've always, you know, taken my uh, my cues on servant leadership from scripture and, mm -hmm. and just making sure that, um, you know, I'm whatever I say I'm going to do, I will do um, that. I'm always putting the needs of others, especially my students and staff above the needs of myself. Um, and I and I also think that, you know, we're in a, a profession where we, we serve children mostly, um, but we also serve adults. And uh, it's sometimes we, you know, sometimes the adults in my building have a tough time when I put the needs of the kids above them. Um, but they, they know that that's where my, my line is. Mm -hmm. And so they've grown to know that if there's a decision that I'm going to make, it's going to be putting kids first. I think I'd add to that, that from the moment you become a leader, you are a role model for the rest of your life as long as you're in leadership and beyond. Uh, when I train and coach younger principals, I remind them that they're, as you said, Scott, you have to have a line, but there are things that you can't do. Even when you're off, there are places you can't go. There are moral and ethical decisions because someone is watching you. They sometimes don't comprehend that 20 years down the road, someone will walk up to you in a mall and say, I remember when you were my child's principal. So if living your life as a role model is not something that you want to do, you need to get out immediately. And that's always my, my uh, motto. Excellent. Um, what falls within the realm of professional ethics and how would you define it? 
uh, I would start with integrity. Mm-hmm. I think that you uh, that as a school leader, you have to really be able to int- define what integrity means for you, and you really have to be able to uh, mean what you say, do what needs to be done, and always make the decision based on what is right, maybe not what is popular. And you have to really always, as Scott mentioned, you have to keep those children at the the forefront of every decision you make. I think that as a school leader, one of the things that you have to do as well is you have to make sure that when you accept that position, that you understand that now you also need to take care of the adults in the building and being a role model, making sure that you're always making the right decisions so that those that you're working with will be able to see what you're going to be doing and and how it needs to be done. In the changing landscape um, that a lot of educators are dealing with right now, heightened tensions, what does integrity look like? Is it the same as it's always been, just doing the right thing, or is it has it shifted because of that changing landscape? I think it starts with always doing the right thing. And I I think that you also have to help those people who you are entrusted with to be able to see what the right thing is through all of the noise mm. that's happening. Uh, the, I think that all of these issues have always been there. And in many circumstances, it's really good that we are able to now be able to address them directly. But I think always making sure that you're making every decision on what is best for everyone within your your span of leadership. Absolutely. I think I'd add to that uh, something that um, Jane said earlier is I believe there is a slight shift that we're seeing now, and that's perhaps the result of social media. Um, mm-hmm. Before, if a school division member did something that was questionable a few years ago, it, it wouldn't make the news. Uh, but now we have to be aware that every decision, every move we make reflects not just on ourselves and our division, but on our profession as a whole. And we're in education, we're taking a lot of hits and a lot of blows for a minority of leaders who are not demonstrating good ethics. And so every day we have to demonstrate that that's the exception, and we still have high standards. And I think you said something in the last question, Day, and it's about you know be your role model when you step into this position, mm-hmm. and you're a role model when you're not on campus as Absolutely. well. And I think this younger generation of administrators coming in that have grown up in the social media age, mm-hmm. they will post things in their personal lives and talk about things going on um, at home mm-hmm. that will reflect on their school district or their school, and they're not as mindful as they should be about that. Knowing that you people are looking at you and you are a role model for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, um, is something that I, I think we really need to work hard to ingrain in this next generation of leaders. Um, you know, make sure your activity on social media is professional. You know, if you're going to type it, ask yourself, would you say it to somebody's face? Um, and I think, uh, you, you know, in, in, in terms of, you know, what is ethical leadership and what does professional ethics look like? It's transparency. Um, you know, everything that you do, being willing to say, yeah, this is, again, knowing who you are. Um, and, and as, as the culture shifts, the district should be able to make a decision. I know who my leader is, but the culture is now saying that this leader might not fit here, right? But I'm not going to change my ethics. 
um, with the culture. I am who I am and I'm going to last as long as my district says I fit in the community. And then I'll move on to a place that wants my personal ethics and what drives me. Scott, I'm, a, I'm, I'm reminded of an experience very early in my career attending a conference um, such as this way across country and getting in the elevator and a gentleman seeing my name tag and saying, oh, you're in Chesapeake, Virginia. My best friend is superintendent there. <laughs> so if, the, if there was ever an illusion that you're out of town and the same <laughs> rules don't apply, uh, I've never forgotten that. Um, fortunately, my ethics and morals are with me all the time. But uh, there, there can sometimes off the clock be the illusion that nobody knows me. Somebody knows you and everybody sees you. Just to tie into that, I think that one of the, the things that I find, especially in uh, mentoring new principals, is one of the first things that you have to tell them is that they do have to get over themselves. Because you, when you accept this position, you really have to make sure that you are selfless, as, as Scott mentioned, but you also have to understand that the everything that you do is going to lead someone somewhere. And you have to make sure that in this day and age of social media, it used to be the press. Well, now everybody's the press. And everyone has access to uh, video, sound bites. Uh, people will forward your emails. And really making sure that uh, that anything that you uh, that you represent, whether it's the where you are or what you say, that it is being an example for those who are looking at how, how to lead. Excellent. Okay. Um, principles need to be multidimensional problem solvers that balance the legal issues, professional standards, cultural responsiveness, etc. cetera. Uh, what do you think is the area principles struggle with the most? Scott, I think you're probably most yeah. qualified to start with um, this. You know, I think that's that's changed over the last 20 years. Um, you know, I, I think about being in California, we have over a thousand bills that go to Sacramento every year, just in terms of education. Um, and, and I'm supposed to stay up to date on all of these bills that I'm legally bound to follow. But then a lot of these bills, because of the diversity of our state, don't connect with our community. And right there you have this ethical dilemma, right? Mm -hmm. And so what I've tried to teach and what I've tried to lead is that I follow the spirit of the law. You know, a lot of lawmakers who represent a more urban area, for example, and I, I work in a more rural area, the spirit of the law is, again, to put kids first, is to protect children. And I know that that's what I come to school and work to do every single day. Um, and so it might not follow the letter of the law because the letter of the law might not apply to my community. But the spirit of law is, again, is to, and I'm going to be transparent about it. I'm going to talk to my board. Hey, here's what the law says. Um, but this is our community. What would, you know, where would you like me to be? Here's my recommendation. And again, that transparency is so imperative. Um, but yeah, I think the culture has shifted so much over the last 20 years. If you've been in education, for like most of us for 20 years, you've seen that this dilemma is getting harder and harder yes. to, to cope with. Um, and I, and I, I think being a new administrator, you're going to come in and it might be more comfortable because you understand the current culture. You're accepting that this is the culture you're going to lead in. But I guarantee you 20 years from now, they're going to be facing the same dilemma that many of us that have been in the profession for a while are facing. 
I'm sorry. Go ahead. There are a lot of issues, and I thought about when you were talking, Scott, uh, so many of the things that are coming up now are very polarizing. And I think that that goes back to what both Scott and Diane have said about really knowing who you are and why do you want to lead. And I think that once you identify that, then you can rely on that that inner integrity to be able to navigate some of the things that are coming at us from many different directions. The community might have certain ideas or there may be a situation that happens in your community that doesn't really fit with your previous experiences. And you have to go back to that inner integrity of, of who am I? Why do I, why have I put myself in this position? And and what is it that I need to do in order to do what's best for my community? Scott, I thought of something that you had said earlier about um, boards and all of our divisions have boards that they report to. And you're right, they can be highly politicized. They can be uh, very uh, polarized. And as a new principal, I think sometimes that that's a shock. And they need to seek guidance and support for from those of us who do that. What do I do? What do I say? Where do I draw that line when I get a request or I get a call that may differ with what I know is ethically the right thing to do? Um, because we all have boards we report to and state and local officials as well. And in this climate, there are times when those lines are blurred. Yeah, and I, I think new principals and, and folks coming into the profession, again, need to know who they are. They need to have a strong moral compass and really have to decide if they're a fit in the district or the school that they're applying. Um, and so they have to do research. They can't be so eager just to get a job and, and where they might land somewhere where their moral compass doesn't line up with the moral compass of the district or community because that's where they're going to get into trouble. That's where they're not going to be successful. And so my recommendation to, to folks getting into the profession or, or, or new leaders would be really do your homework and, and find a place to work that matches who you are. And you'll be you'll definitely line yourself up to be more successful in the profession. Absolutely. And I think that leads us well into our next topic, which is mentorship. Do you feel that mentorship can sort of inform someone and whether or not they align? Or do you feel like a lot of that work needs to be put in before they even take the position? I, I'll speak just to my experiences mm -hmm. of being mentored, um, because I think I've got two people that are experts yes. in mentorship here at the table with me. Um, I wouldn't have lasted. I wouldn't have survived without mm. mentorship as a new principal. Um, I was fortunate enough that my superintendent recognized that I needed a mentor. I was 27 years old and was given two schools to lead simultaneously. Um, and he put an assistant superintendent at each school. He moved their office out of the district office and gave them an office at each of my schools just so I had access, just so I could go in there and sit and say, here's what I'm thinking of doing. Am I going to get in trouble? And, and so they would guide me. And I mean, I, I look back and I wouldn't have, I would have been one of the statistics of a burnt out new leader. Yeah. All right, Jane and Diane, uh, from a mentoring perspective, what issues are coming up for principals, especially early career principals? You know, I think that one of the things that uh, NAESP has done a really good job is preparing people to be mentors. I know that uh, that I'm involved in training mentors as well as coaching mentors for NAESP. And one of the things that I, I, I really feel is that the 
that the mentor really needs to understand their role in shaping new leaders, but ensuring that that the leader themselves comes out. You have to develop who the who the leader is as their own person. And I, I think that that's one of the things that good mentoring does is it helps that individual understand how it is that they're going to make those tough decisions and, and navigate the, the things that come up when you're leading a school. I'd agree with Jane. I, too, uh, train and support mentors for NASP and on our monthly coaching meetings. I'll start with just a few minutes of asking the current mentor tours, how's your day going? How's your week going? And we spend a few minutes talking about that. Then I'll shift gears and say, now imagine that you're the brand new principal who is facing the exact same issues without your experience and without your support. Um, because it's, it's very, very difficult, even for those of us who are veterans of 30 and 40 years, the work is very, very difficult, and I think you also need different types of mentors. And as you said, the best mentors are trained to not bring people to the answer, but guide them and facilitate them and build their capacity into solving their own problems. But I also think there's a lot of validity in having a, a personal mentor in the field, someone that you can be uh, very raw with who is not in an evaluatory mode of you to say, you won't believe my, what my day was like. So different types of mentors, but the research is telling us that as much as 50% are either wanting to leave the profession or retiring, and that's huge. So it tells you that the support is necessary. And I think not just for brand new principals in my division, I remind them, if you're in year three and year four, you're brand new mm -hmm. because the first two years of COVID don't count. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a need for mentoring even beyond that point when you start to feel uh, stale or disillusioned. So the power of mentoring is something I feel so passionate about. And it's so needed in our profession because we're losing good people who are not feeling supported. I agree so much with Diane. I think that one of the things as true professionals, we need to reflect on how can we best do our jobs. And one of those is by having people that we can collaborate with. And there are so many people that are in the profession. I work right now with people that are uh, 12, 14, 16 years in the profession, and they just really, because of the current climate in our world, they're facing things that no one has ever faced, and they just need someone to help guide them and navigate them through these really challenging waters that we're facing in education today. And so I think that we have to also think as a profession of looking beyond mentoring just for new and early entry career leaders, but really looking at developing a strong uh, mentoring environment for all leaders because we all need support at different times. I think there's also another piece of mentoring for new people that's valuable too. And as I mentioned earlier, our job as mentors is to guide someone to their own solution. But there are also some times when you just need some how-to. So I will start with, with new principles and 
say you're going to figure out your own electronic organizational system, but let me tell you how I do it. And then you can choose from it. Here's how I set up my world. Here's how I set up my planner, because there are some basic things that they can just learn from us here. Here's a copy of it. Take it, tweak it, make it your own. So we can be as mentors, a valuable resource for someone who's brand new and they don't have to spend that energy into creating everything from scratch. It's a perfect segue, Diane. So <laughs> the next question, um, from a mentoring perspective, what guiding questions do you use to help principals think through their response to those issues? I'll go ahead and, and take that one. I think that one of the things when someone asks me a question, uh, I'll ask them, what are your first thoughts? Because I think that intuitively, sometimes we all second guess ourselves. And so I think that helping them to be able to identify how comfortable they feel with their decisions and then helping them to, uh, to follow it all the way through to impact. So let's take this thought and let's follow it through. Let's look at all of the different ways that uh, that all the twists and turns that could happen with this. And now, uh, which do you feel most comfortable following? And then help them to then navigate a plan of action. So really getting them to start to trust themselves and also to identify what information they need in order to be able to actually implement something, follow it through, but really trying to help them see what resources that they have around themselves. I think that part of making decisions and venturing on your journey of a leader is taking risks. And when you take risks, you're going to make mistakes. So it's important that we help people define that line between what I would call a fatal mistake that you cannot come back from and what is a decision that you made that probably just wasn't your finest moment that you might have to regroup and even be humble enough to say to your staff, we tried that. I thought it was a great idea at the time. Now we're going to go down a different path. But when you're brand new, everything seems fatal and there's a lot that is. So helping them realize that unless it's in this category, you can take a risk and then sit back and reflect and say, next time, I think I'd do that differently. Because when you're new, it's, it's very scary to take a risk. I also try to help them identify where, at what point are you going to stop and reflect and look back and see if this is, was, was a good decision before they embark. Because I think that one of the things that people new to the career think is, I'm going to implement this and then this is the way we're going to do it forever. And I think that whether you're going to give yourself a week, two weeks, uh, a quarter, whatever it happens to be, and then reflect, but ha help them identify what is that stopping point where I'm going to reflect and for them to let everyone know we're going to try this for two weeks or we're going to, uh, you know, really help them to be able to identify when am I going to stop and reflect and everyone knows that this is part of that decision journey and that it's not that I'm halting everything and I'm changing my mind all the time, but helping them define what that looks like so that they can be able to communicate it to the people they work with and enable them to be able to provide feedback. So really giving them those, those tools that help them make decisions, but also know that every decision isn't final or fatal. It's just a, a, a part of that decision journey and that they have to be comfortable in doing that. 
I think the two major pitfalls that our leaders or any leader can fall into have to do with ego and power. The second one, people realize very quickly when they become a principal, you don't have nearly as much power as you think. (laughs) In fact, you have none. (laughs) When you move to central office, you have even less than that. Uh, But those are the areas that I see that cause people the most difficulty. When you get consumed by ego and power, that's when you also don't make those great ethical decisions. And that's when you forget to include stakeholders in your decision. As a principal, I always reminded myself, these folks, I need them a whole lot more than they need me. They don't think that's the case. But once you shift from that mindset that even the people in your building don't need you, then your your ego is involved. And then you're, you're going to make some fatal errors. But ego and power seem to be the two things that cause people to cross the lines that they may think they never would cross. And that's a humbling lesson to learn as a new administrator to to understand how much humility is needed in the profession when you think about, like you just said, is the school will probably function just fine if you're not there, <laughs> right? The sooner yeah. you learn that and realize that, okay, but the school can function much better if I am, yeah. right? And it's like yeah. that you're there to support the people who support the people who support the people. Yeah. Right. And it's not about you. And and to add to that, and not just the functioning of our schools, but in creating leaders, our goals should always be to make places better than they were when we came. Mm. But also when we leave to leave a legacy that continues. So you don't want a, a building that is so dependent on you so that when you leave, it falls apart. And as Scott said, they can function just fine without you. But you do ask yourself, was this setting any better for, for the fact that I was here? Did I do anything that made a difference? I want to go back to a point that was made earlier about the fact that we have a lot of people that are either choosing to leave the profession or are at the end of their career and are retiring. And I think that one of the thing that, things that's so important to do is to have Uh, leaders identify who could replace you. I think that we have to really build a deep bench in leadership and, uh, and with teaching. I think that we all need to be looking for educators wherever we are. And I think that we're responsible for not just developing the new leaders, but finding them. And I think that we have to charge our new leaders with thinking about if you were not in the building, who could carry on and do the work that you're doing? And so really helping them see that they are part of this this leadership tier that involves not just becoming the leader themselves, but also looking for leadership within their building and within their community. Jane, to add to that, I heard a superintendent whose name I have unfortunately forgotten at a conference a few months ago saying that paying it forward is more than just paying for someone's meal in the grocery line. Paying it forward is our professional obligation of speaking their names in important rooms. And what she meant by that is when we have strong people, strong, talented people, it's our responsibility to promote them, give them leadership opportunities, and make sure that our leadership knows, here's a person worth taking a look at. So I have not forgotten that message, and I think I won't. 
paying it forward is speaking their name in important rooms. All right. Scott, despite the extensive legal protections afforded to students and teachers, there are still many gray areas in school law that are not clearly defined. The Fifty Shades of Gray you mentioned earlier off air. Uh, Talk about these gray areas. Uh, They can create a host of ethical dilemmas for educators and administrators who must balance their legal obligations with their moral and ethical responsibilities. So every spring I I teach school law um, to prepare future administrators for the profession. And I always ask how many of you, you know, want to become school principals at the beginning of the term. And then I ask the same question at the end and it drops about by half just after the result of my class. When we talk about, um, they're terrified. It's terrifying when you think about school law and the fact that you are the catalyst of implementing the laws and making sure laws are upheld on your campus. Um, But one of the things that I embark on doing for the term is to show them the gray areas and that it's about ethical decision making. Um, And I always tell them, you're not wrong unless you're wrong. Right. And that you probably understand what that means because you've been in the profession long enough to understand that you're going to make decisions based on your moral compass and what you believe is right. And nothing might happen from there. Everybody might be okay with the decision you made until somebody doesn't. Mm. And now it's like, oh gosh, that was the wrong decision. If enough people, um, believe that the decision you made was incorrect. So I think about, you know, some of the decisions that I've had to make over my career. And I I do the same thing in my class is I present scenarios. And then as they work through the scenarios, I play devil's advocate. Well, what if this happened? You know, I think to one of my scenarios is star quarterback, senior year, uh, you know, homecoming game Friday. On Tuesday, he does something inappropriate. There's going to be a tremendous amount of scouts at the game. Your community is a football-driven school and or you know community, um, but you have to discipline the student, and he probably shouldn't play in the game. But get ready for the boosters. Get ready, and it's these. There's going to be backlash mm-hmm. no matter what decision you make, and you have to be okay because I tell them you should be able to go to bed at night knowing you did the right thing, right? And so. Um, some of the the choices I've had to make over the years is, you know, a third grader bringing a knife to school. Now, now education code says I'm supposed to suspend and recommend expulsion, but this is a third grader. I'm there. He's a baby and I want to teach. I want to say, okay, what was your motive for bringing the knife? Where'd you get the knife? And, and you do an investigation. Um, you think about special education, um, you know, where you might have a student who didn't qualify under the, the laws for special education, but you know, they need more help. And so you, guest them into a special education class, which you're not technically supposed to do because it robs minutes, but you're figuring out, you're doing what's best for the student, right? And sometimes it's like, I'm going to do, I'm going to, I'm going to take a chance. I'm going to take a risk. Like you said earlier, um, on doing what's best for kids. And what I've found in 22 years, uh, 18 as an administrator is when you do what's best for kids, you can't lose. You just, you're not going to lose. And you're going to either be able to stand up in front of everybody who questions your decision and just confidently say, I did what was the best interest of my students. Um, You think about in in today's day and age, when we think about school safety and gun violence, um, you know, a fourth grade student says, I'm going to go home and get a gun and shoot you. Some, some administrators might overreact to that statement. Now, cooler heads will prevail. Okay, let's do a risk assessment at the house. Do they, does he have access to firearms? Is this just something he said out of anger? And you take the time and say, okay, I'm not kicking you out of school for saying that. 
I'm going to teach you that that's not something we say in school. And so that to me is the gray area that we operate in is focusing on every moment, focusing on the kids. It's so critical to have a network of people to say, Hey, this is what happened today. This is what I'm thinking of doing. What do you think? Let's, let's play this out. What are the potential risks or pitfalls that I'm going to run into? Um, calling your superintendent. If you're a principal, I always, one of the, I, I teach my students a few sayings throughout the year. If you're not wrong, you're wrong uh, until you're wrong. But one of my always say is if a problem deviates from the norm, call your superintendent. Just they would rather get a call from you before something happens oh, yeah. to check with them than after the fact and they go, why didn't you call me? That's why I'm here. Absolutely. I think that with young principals, that's a hard thing to do. And I, that's why you need to really emphasize that relationship that you have with your superintendent is very, very important. And if they trusted you with the school, you need to trust them when an issue comes up, because the last thing that you want is for that superintendent to get a call before you have an opportunity to have a conversation with them. Especially in this day and age, as you mentioned, social media, like everything is so fast. Yes, absolutely. Um, Ethical leadership in the current political climate where certain things are being mandated that cause leaders to have to find a way to lead through them. Um, Can we talk about that a little bit? So I think it's um, this is one area that it's critical to be to have a network. This is where NASP and my state association have played a tremendous role is is having so many people on your phone that you can call when you're faced with an ethical dilemma, Um, people that are like minded and then also people that, you know, that might think differently than you so that you can get another perspective. It's okay to, to surround yourself with people that don't necessarily always agree with you. Um, and, and I think we, we can learn a lot from that. Um, so I, I think about this climate that we're in and leading through them, it's tremendously easier when you, when you're part of a network like NASP or, or you have people that you can lean on, um, through di- making difficult decisions. Um, and then it's just, again, getting into this profession, you have to know what you're getting into. If you, if you want to become an administrator because you want a bigger paycheck, or if you're getting into administration because you want to become a superintendent someday, you really need to question why you're doing it because you're going to get beat up um, a lot. And, and your middle management, your, your lots of responsibility with no authority. <laughs> um, you are a lead from behind servant leader. Um, it takes a tremendous amount of humility and most people aren't going to like you a lot. Um, maybe that's just me. <laughs> no, uh, it's, it's, but as long as they respect who you are and the decisions you're making, they might not be happy with them and you have to be okay. And I know something that's ingrained, it's a part of all of us is the desire to make people happy. And that can get you into a lot of trouble. Um, I know you said earlier, Jane was, you know, uh, doing what's right, even though it's not popular is something that I think um, we're faced with as school administrators frequently. I think something we're it, we're all experiencing with ethical leadership is, first of all, remembering that our schools are just a microcosm of society. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the issues that are hitting the news, of course, they're coming to our schools. The hardest part, I believe, for a lot of us is 
how do what happens when those values don't line up with your beliefs, including your your spiritual beliefs, uh, and they're I mean they're they're tons of transgender issues, uh, different books with questionable material. Uh, you know the list could just go on and on. And where do you draw that line between what in in your soul feels it's just not right, but is is the law and each of us have to determine where you lie on that spectrum because you're still paid as a school system employee out of public funds. And unfortunately, I don't get an opportunity or have the right to select the laws that I'm going to follow. If it's perhaps, uh, let's say, a transgender issue that someone's not comfortable, but it's the law that that is protected, then I, I have to follow the law. And those are very difficult issues. And those are conversations that we need to have with younger administrators. Those were not issues when I was an early principal, and they are now. There's certainly a daily part of my job in the central office. And you're, you have to decide very early, is this what you want to sign up for? Because it's not going to get any better. The, the pandemic brought out a lot of the polarizing issues and, and they haven't gone away. Uh, so following the law is important. It's, it's actually mandatory. And there are times when that law may differ with what is in your soul and in your heart. And it's important to get involved in the process, yeah. right? Um, advocacy. Yes. If you're a school administrator, Get involved in advocacy for, for education. Right. Go to your state capitol. Get to know your local lawmakers. Have conversations with them when a law is coming to be passed and talk to them about the implications of that law on your school community. They're there to represent you. Um, that's one thing that I'm, I'm thankful that I've been involved in with for over 15 years now is, you know, I know I have all of my assembly members and Senate members on my phone to contact when something's coming up. Yeah. Hey, just so you know, this is coming across and I know you're not going to hear this from every leader, but this is what it's going to do in our community here and have those two way conversations. But advocacy is, is a critical role that I think I, I guarantee you most new administrators don't think that that's part of their job description. Um, cause it's not taught in the school programs. Um, it's something they feel like, well, somebody else is talking about it. Somebody else will fight for me. Um, but if you're, upset about the laws that you have to follow, then have conversations with your lawmakers about those laws. And I think that the conversations, there are a couple of things that both Diane and Scott have mentioned. I think that number one, uh, be, getting involved in the NAESP, being a member of an organization that is there for you to provide support educationally, to provide that support with advocacy. And I think that state associations are vital, uh, that you have an opportunity within your state association for advocacy and to be able to surround yourself with people that are dealing with those same political issues that you may be dealing with. I think that the other thing is sometimes we miss opportunities and within our schools, we often have, uh, we have people that are making decisions on our behalf that may be loosely aligned with our school. I know that uh, one year I invited the Speaker of the House in our a state house of representatives to just come to my school and to shadow me for a day. And at the end of the day, he said, 
you have changed my entire perspective on education. And I think that invitation is, is there. We, we don't just go, go to the hill or, or go to the house. We've got to invite them into our house. And I think that we need to develop young educators and young leaders that will invite people in and see the work that we're doing and how their decisions are impacting us. So I, I really think that that advocacy goes both ways. We, you know, we have to advocate for what our positions are, but we also have to uh, we have to educate those who believe that they're advocating on our behalf. But we need to make sure that they really understand what is it like being in a schoolhouse and those decisions that are being made all day long. And I know that one of the one of the things that the speaker shared with me at the end of the day was you made more decisions in 30 minutes than I make in an entire session. And so they they really need to be able to understand the work that we're doing in schools and how it's impacting the future, not just of our community, not just of our state, but of our nation. I'm always reminded that there's a difference between policy and regulations. The policies are the what, and our local regulations are how we implement the what. And that's our opportunity to ensure that we're following the law, but we're not allowing a law that gives parents rights for one particular topic to supersede the rights of all. So that's when at the local level, we we have to be uh, very careful and very collaborative about how we write our policies and our regulations to ensure that everyone has has the right and that we follow the law. But how we do it is is very critical. Now you make a really good point. I think that sometimes we the the pendulum swings back and forth, yes. and every time the 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 pendulum goes beyond midpoint, it's beginning to impact other people in a in a different way. And so I think that as leaders, we have to be able to see the entire spectrum of, of how decisions are impacting everyone, not just a particular group. And that's where ethical leadership comes in really, really becomes very, very important because you have to be able to see that and make sure that you're making a balanced decision when decisions have to be made. Can we talk about establishing a school culture that recognizes diversity of thought? So defining, quote unquote, professional behavior, dress codes for students and staff, et cetera. I'd like to start with that one. When we think of the term diversity, we erroneously automatically go to racial diversity. And it's it's deeper than that. I think one of the issues, uh, challenges that a new person has is Who's your advisory? Who who are your thought partners? Who's on your leadership team in your school? And I always suggest it's very easy to pull in people who think like you do, but that's not what you want. You want different styles of, of um, characteristics, but you also want to include a couple of naysayers and people who are going to give you a little bit of pushback as well and, and pull your coattails and say, but if we do this, then we do that. So I actually suggest to them that it's so critical how you form that that leadership that that leadership team and make sure there's diversity of thought there and ask them you're not 
the genius. I, I say to folks, all of my ideas are not brilliant. Occasionally, one or two brilliant ones might emerge, but most of them are anything but that. So you bring in a, a well-rounded group of people and actually talk, talk about these topics, these sensitive topics like uh, behavior and curriculum and dress code. And if we do this, what will happen? And give people the permission to disagree respectfully, of course, without being disagreeable. But I will say to folks that I lead, I want you to push back and, and give me something to think about. Or we're all going and fall into this black hole together. So the diversity of thought is something that new people do not often think about because, frankly, that's the hard way to do it. But the results are exactly what you want. Dress, dress code. We're really asking a question about dress code here, Ashley. I know. Right? <laughs> okay. uh, talk about something that's shifted over the yeah. last 20 years. Yeah. I think about early on in my career, a student would come to school with blue hair and I'd send them home. Mm. And now my teachers have blue hair, right? So it's <laughs> yeah. just things have uh, shifted tremendously. And uh, again, I think you have to you have to ask yourself, you have to get down to really the core of why are we here? We are here to educate children. Um, and I think about things like dress code and, um, you know, if, if what something, what, if something, somebody's wearing something, is it distracting other students from learning? Then that's a dress code violation. Mm -hmm. I don't care what it is, but if you're wearing something that's not bugging anybody else and we can move on with our lives and learn, then I'm not going to die on that hill as a school leader. And so it's picking and choosing your battles. If you come into a school building and you say, I am a black and white leader and I follow the law. And if you do this, you're going to get this consequence. Good luck. Good luck. You have to adjust to your community. You have to build relationships with the people there. You have to know the community very well. If you're going to be the school leader, what are their expectations? And where, again, knowing who you are and whether or not you're a good fit. I've seen, I've known too many young administrators, um, or not even young administrators. I would say, you know, people that I taught with that had been teaching for 20 years. And I remember them sitting in the staff room saying, you know, when I become principal, I'm going to, man, I'm so going to change this. I'm so tired of this. I'm going to change it. Yeah. (laughs) And then they became a principal and then they did that and it just blew up in their face because they had this this festering, disgruntled belief that whatever their leader was doing was wrong without seeing the whole picture. I always I always put a picture of an iceberg up for, for my class, and I say, okay, here's what everybody sees is what's above the surface. Here's everything you're doing and everything you know is right below. Um, and you don't get to share that. You don't get to share the whys and the hows. You just do it. Um, and you also don't get to defend if, you know, yourself if you if somebody thinks you did something wrong it's just yeah i'm sorry i'll do it better next time and you're very humble in it but yeah dress code (laughs) but scott you opened up that can of dress code so i I have to go there because it's something i feel very strongly about and that's adult dress code covid has has ruined us and we all got used to even if it was just a couple of months of being dressed from the waist up and (laughs) at the bottom you had your pajamas on but that has transformed into even what our our educators look like. And I feel very strongly about it. We were having such a difficult time transitioning back that I think we swung the pendulum too far back and we were just so glad people showed up to work. Mm. And we didn't even want to tackle that. 
well, we need to step up from that now because it goes back to what I said earlier about being a role model. When I walk into a school and I can't tell who just walked in off the street and who is the staff member there, that's a challenge and that's mm-hmm. a problem for me. And we have definitely lost that. When I see our our principals looking like they're going to Lowe's or pick strawberries, that that's a, a, a challenge for me because... Our young people need to look at us and say, oh, that's somewhere who's going somewhere important. As an elementary principal, when I was complimented, they would say, where are you going today? My standard response was to the most important place in the world to be with you today. And our attire, our behavior needs to demonstrate that we woke up at the board in the morning and made a conscious decision to be a professional and come to work. We have lost that in our schools, Mm. and it's, it's very sad to see. I think overall culture has to do with respect. And when we're talking about adult dress code, it's respect for the profession. And I think that we, uh, if you create a culture of respect, respect for people's differences, uh, being accepting of those who are different from ourselves, whether it's within the staff or whether it's within the student body, I, I think that that, that overall respect for each other, what we, what our experiences are, our backgrounds. But that's an important part of school culture is making sure that there is mutual respect for everyone in that building and knowing that together we're going someplace special. Right. Um, I think we're just about ready to wrap up here. Uh, Scott, I do have one more for you. Um, talk about educators' responsibility to seek out and participate in professional development opportunities that help them stay up to date on the latest legal and ethical issues in education, and what resources should they seek out? Join NASP. <laughs> easy peasy. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. yeah. No, you, it's, you have, you know, your organizations have people that follow updates in the law. Um, and then they they gather information from members on ethical dilemmas and things happening in the culture from across the country, which is beautiful. Um, if you're not tuned in, if you're not listening, um, you're not helping yourself out in your career. You can get caught up being stuck in a silo um, in an echo chamber of only seeing what's happening in your own school community and miss out on things that are coming down the pipeline because you're in tune with what's happening somewhere else and it'll eventually get to you. Um, Or being connected to experts in the field who can really help you. Um, You know, the advocacy center here at NASP where we get our email blasts on here, here's what's coming in Washington. Here's, you know, changes in Title II. Talk to your legislator, talk to your senator. is critical and your state organizations do the same thing. They keep you connected to what's happening because all of those decisions that I learned very quickly in my career, everything that I didn't like about the profession, that decision rolled downhill from a decision that somebody that had never stepped foot on my campus made. And so that really invigorated me to get involved in advocacy. So get involved, join your state association, join the National Association, and open up the emails that drop into your inbox and read the publications, yes. I was going to say, you know, I I think that as a a profession, the easiest way to have good professional development and stay current with everything that's going on is to join your state and national association. NAESP has 
a, a wonderful email that comes in every day, the Principal Insights, and you have a wealth of information there, and that is professional development delivered to you every morning. And so I, I think that uh, there uh, are good resources, but the simplest way, and I think the most effective way, is to belong to your state and national association so that you are kept current with what's going on and it will help you make good decisions moving forward. And I think I would add, you know, don't just be a consumer of your organizations, get involved in your organization, step up and lead, um, give back to the profession, um, is something that I would encourage every principal to figure out a way to do. Um, you know, run for office within your organization, sit on a council, get on a committee, um, join a community of practice, Give back to the profession. If you're just going to sit and consume, you're not going to get everything that, that you can out of the organization. And that helps you develop relationships as well. I think that some of my strongest relationships have been a result of being uh, on the board and other leadership roles within the state and national associations. And, and those people will be able to also give you a better perspective that things that you think are unique to your state really are not so unique and that other people are dealing with it. And it, it provides you with a, a, a wealth of opportunity to share with them as well as have uh, them have an opportunity to share with you. Excellent. Well, I think that about does it, unless there's any parting thoughts you are just aching to share. <laughs> no. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being here today. I think this was fantastic and enjoy the rest of your conference. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you. Thank Appreciate you. it, Ashley.